What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode. And today we are talking about the industry of building surveying. Now, why is this important? Well, as I've been speaking to one of my own coaching clients in the last couple of days, we were talking about a building project that he's thinking of embarking on. And the very first port of call we said was building survey, get a building surveyor on the uh, project right away and just get an assessment of the existing building. And that is, it's your first port of call when you start any kind of a project. You wanna know where you stand, is the building in good condition? If it's in poor condition, how bad of a condition is it? All of that kind of stuff. Now, I'm actually bringing a building surveyor who I've worked with many times, Christina Ravitch. And Christina, she is both a chartered building surveyor, she's also a chartered project manager, and she also has a business that goes into sustainability and uh, they do energy audits and all of this stuff. I'm working with them already and um, I think this is going to be a very helpful episode for you guys. Now, before I go into it, I have to explain there's been a bit of a mess by myself today. Uh, I don't make mistakes on this that often, but today there's going to be a bit of a sound quality issue with this episode. I started the recording and before I realized that I actually had the volume turned down on one of the microphones. So for the first 10 minutes or so, the audio is pretty poor. And then Christina's microphone is working perfectly. My own one is still a bit poor. So apologies, guys. It's been a bit of a disaster trying to put this episode together. I've discovered that the, there's different frame rates and so the thing starts going out of sync and stuff like that. I got a phone call in the middle of it. Then I had visitors interrupting. So it's been a bit of a disaster. Please bear with it. I think Christina has some really valuable information. And um, one in particular I think that you're going to find very valuable is last week's episode I talked about the, the BEOR and in the UK the EPC and the fact that the the, um, the standards are increasing and if you want to rent your property you're going to have to have it at a certain standard. Well, Christina confirms in this episode that it is coming to the Irish market. Now, so you'll have to listen out for that, but she says it's definitely coming and it's part of the EPPD. I'll let her explain uh, all of that. There's talk, We talk about adding value to your property, using grants to go and, and do all of this kind of stuff. Um, so I think you're going to find a great deal of value. And so without further ado, please, my conversation with Miss Christina Ravitch. Christina Ravitch, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here at last. Um, yeah, it's taken a while to go and coordinate all of our efforts. But um, tell us, uh, Christina, in terms of like, I'm going to have introduced you, but people would like to hear it in your words. You know, can you give us what you're if you're pitching a client, what would you say in you know kind of like 30 seconds? What would you say okay. is your 
Will do. So I'm a chartered building surveyor and a chartered project manager. I uh, worked initially in the UK, came to Ireland and worked for Hamilton Osborne King, now Savills for seven years, heading up their building surveying department, and then set up on my own in 2000. I've run that business, KRA Visionary Project Partners, as a building surveying and project management consultancy since then. And in 2018, we set up KRA Renewables to help our clients in sustainability in the built environment. And that spans everything from renewables assessments to energy audits, uh, ESG, etc. Right. Okay. Well, I'm familiar with you from doing schedules of dilapidation and things like yeah. that. But do you do domestic work, things like that? Like We do a little bit of domestic work. It wouldn't be our main area of, of focus, uh, although we've always done some domestic work. But where we're getting involved now more is retrofit, and particularly retrofit at scale. Yeah. I was so, thinking that that would be on the, yeah. in fact I have it on my notes to ask yeah. you because the retrofit plan the national plan it's, it's a very ambitious plan it's, it is 500,000 homes by 2030 and I think um, everybody and his brother would say that we're really struggling to make inroads into that target yeah. at the moment mm -hmm. and the big challenge is that we um, you know the cost of doing the retrofit generally doesn't make sense unless you're also doing something else to the home. So yeah. if you're extending and renovating a house generally, the retrofit and the grants really contribute well and, and it works well. But if you go into a home where the householder wants to stay in place, you're doing a minimal retrofit to get to B2. The work that has to be done generally costs so much and causes so much disruption that it's very difficult to get by. Mm. Yeah. I know it's funny I've spoken to a couple of coaching clients that I have and they're looking at this in fact one of them has gone and set up a, a solar panel and retrofit business in order to you know, jump on board all of this mm -hmm. but we were kind of talking about you know there's all these grants that are out there but the grants don't cover the cost they just you know make it I suppose a small inroad in the cost but you need to be writing a check yourself for, for a sizable sum really don't you that's right well i think the maximum grant if you did absolutely every measure um, and you did it through the community energy grants uh, system where you're getting uh, a bonus this year for heat pump installation as well would be around 30 to 35 maximum thousand right. probably twenty eight thousand in reality for most uh, homes now your retrofit could be costing you a hundred thousand so that's a big gap to bridge in the absence of any real green finance available currently. Yeah. Now, if you were able to borrow that, say, um, in a way such as, let's say in Italy, they set up a scheme whereby you borrowed it from your local credit union equivalent, but it was a government-backed loan, and then you pay it back through your payroll, and it's taken out before tax. Um, so that sort of approach I think could work very well mm -hmm. but I do understand that they've run into a few problems with that scheme with people doing works that they shouldn't have done there's always the somebody going to fiddle the system yeah. in some way yeah. yeah and then it ruins it for everyone else yeah um tell me Christina before we get into because we're, we're getting straight into some of the important stuff that I want to cover today but before we do let's just backtrack a bit you mentioned you were in the UK before but with your name you're, you're Polish originally, is that right? My family's Polish. Right. So my parents are both Polish. They were both taken uh, out of Poland separately and by different routes by the Soviets during the Second World War. Oh, okay. They were both children. My mum was eight and my dad was ten. 
both spent a couple of years in Siberia under different circumstances and uh, managed to leave when the Soviets changed sides and joined the Allies. Um, there was an armistice in, in Russia which allowed Poles to leave but didn't facilitate them. And both of them actually left with the uh, Polish army in exile. Um, so my mum in a Polish orphanage in exile and my dad with his mum, he became an army cadet at the age of 12 in Tehran. So well, Tehran, right. Tehran, yeah. Uh, after after leaving the Soviet Union, so um, yeah, long long stories. Ended up in the UK uh, in, in at the end of the Second World War, around forty eight, wow. and actually planned to go back, but didn't because of the stories that were coming out as to what happened to people who went back at that time. Wow. Yeah. So stayed settled, and I was born in in the UK as a sort of right second right. generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting. It's it's funny uh, because. You know Lucas, who works here in my yes. office. He's Polish as well, yeah. and when he when he saw your surname, he was immediately like, "Oh, you know, it's yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. funny how people." Uh, and there's a huge Polish population here in, in the United. Well, there is, and um, when I came to Ireland in '94, like I was very exotic because I I had a Polish surname, and I think the only other Polish person I met in the first few years here was Andrzej Wehart, the oh, yes. architect, and his wife, and we got on very well. Um, but, uh, you know, that all changed, obviously, with the boom and with the yeah. large influx of, of lots of different nationalities. So we have to say we're a different country now, a totally. completely different country. It's amazing. I was just thinking about this the other day. I mean, when I was leaving college back in 97, kind of 95 kind of time, I can remember, like, you were going out into, like, by that stage, it had already begun to change. But growing up, like there was only Irish people. You only ever had yeah. Irish friends. Like you had nobody that yeah. was foreign. I mean, except maybe in school, there might be you know you might have, might have met the odd person whose father was an ambassador or something yeah. like that. But that was the extent of it. Yeah. Now my kids are in school, and it's every nationality. It's incredible yeah. how Ireland has changed. And of course, that's one of the reasons why we have such a housing issue now is that the yeah. inward migration and the and the demographics are just so strong. I think we're by far the strongest country in a fastest growing country in the EU. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that we're booking the trend and in many ways that bodes well for us because the biggest problem in so many countries now is the aging population and the yeah. fact that there isn't sufficient tax base or people base to support that aging population. Yeah. Whereas we are at least a decade behind the UK in that and now we have lots of immigration from cultures which traditionally have higher rates of um, birth, and, yeah. birth than, than we have moved to and, and perhaps lower marriage rates and so on. So mm. you're starting families at a younger age, all of which means that we may perhaps avoid the elderly crisis that is facing so many countries. Well, hopefully, I, or, or else we just kick the, the can down the road a little that bit. That is possible also, yeah, yeah. that is possible also. But it does, of course, bring in its wake huge problems and we saw something similar in 2005 and 6 when we had you know uh, eastern european construction workers building the peripheral housing estates to be occupied by eastern european <laughs> yeah. construction workers and we're in a different game now because most people are not going to be able to buy any houses that are built so it's yeah. rental that we're looking at it has changed uh, and it's and that's creating problems in itself because the the scale of building and the scale of the rental issue that we have. I mean, I, we, we're building 
housing uh, and we've rented some of them we've done a scheme where mm. you bring in a big investor from you know, for, you know one of the big institutions and the problem is that since the interest rates have shifted that has no longer that that whole business model that was working beautifully is now broken mm. um, and the guys are not looking for the same you know the, the rates basically that they expect of a return uh, have completely changed and so all of a sudden there's a spanner in the work there uh, in the works and I don't think that that is going to be as viable an option going yeah. forward unless there's some way that the government can support it with tax breaks or something and of course you know as soon as you mention tax breaks for developers like it's kind of like what you know <laughs> yeah and of course we all remember the you know tax breaks for, for holiday homes and yeah. then the swathes and swathes of holiday homes in in wild and remote areas that are empty for most of the year and tax breaks for commercial units as well if you remember that one yeah so I, I, I was i was victim of that one as well and still have a vacant retail unit uh, which is likely to remain vacant how did you end up in con in construction property um, going back oh, to you know yeah, this is one of the it's a question i like to ask because a lot of the time you know parents are the reason that people end up in but sometimes people kind of you know choose for a different reason so yeah what, so, what so mine was there? completely different um so i was um the first person in my family very small family first person to go to university and i actually uh, was fortunate enough to get a place at oxford so i went to saint Catharines college oxford for three years and i did a degree in modern history and economics and then left as a graduate, not knowing what I was going to do, um, decided that I wanted to travel, found a, teach uh, found a teaching degree that would give me teaching English as a foreign language, but I was a bit slow in all of this, so I had a year to kill between finishing university and starting the teaching degree. Um, Travelled for a, for a bit, ended up back in Birmingham, where I'm from, uh, in the spring, uh, got a flat in those days you could get a flat without a job but got a flat and then needed money to pay the rent so I got a job in the local job center right. a temporary job and while I was there a job came in for Birmingham City Council as a trainee graduate building surveyor right. so there were two jobs there was trainee graduate housing manager and trainee graduate building surveyor and the building surveyor role paid more slightly more 6250 a year and i applied because it paid more than i was on in the job center nice. basically i went for a first interview had a good first interview and by the time i went for the second interview had really got interested in this idea that you did day release for five years to get a degree in building surveying that it was a professional qualification and um uh, got the got the position and in fact, I was the only person ever taken on the graduate trainee yeah. building surveyor scheme in the council. But I was with them for four years and then left and, and joined the private sector before I finished my degree and, and qualified and became a chartered surveyor in the UK. So it was very much chance. Chance. And, and what's interesting is that that chance, you now have, have a business and, and, and people working for you and everything like that. And it's, it's not a path that was charted like by, absolutely by choice yeah. back in the early days well i think actually on reflection when i look back at it um the one thing i learned in the job center was i did not want to be sitting behind a desk all day every day so that was a really interesting learning and i i've said to all my kids if you get work experience of any sort 
do it. It doesn't. If you hate it, you will at least learn what you hate, what doesn't work for you. So um, it was really useful to 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 know that about myself. And actually, what I love, 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 love about what I do is that you're not desk bound all the time. You might be at the desk for you know a few days on end writing a report. But you're dealing with everybody. I, I always said I wanted to work with people. Mm. And I kind of thought maybe community work, which I'd done during holidays, maybe social work, something like that. Actually, I work with people every day, every day of the week. And I work with people from the guy on site who's pouring the, concretes, the concrete in the hard hat and wellies mm. to the CEO of a multinational. Mm. And you're, you know, actually... People are the most important part of what we do. What we do is deal with bricks and mortar, but an awful lot of what we do is helping people to make their way through complex problems. That's, you, you that's know a really what good way. Are. Yeah, that's a really good way of articulating it because the um, a lot of people. I mean, certainly a lot of people would be there. Oh, you know, they want to get into property or they want to become like a financial trader or something like that, mm. and they don't. They they like the idea of it. But as soon as it involves like spending all day sitting on a screen or something like that, mm. what I've been saying all along is that the property business is a people business because whether it's, as you say, the people that you meet and clients and, and all that, but like if you're looking to buy a property or sell a property, there is a whole face-to-face -face negotiation that goes on mm. there. There's like understanding the motivation behind buying property or selling a property. And so it's very much people skills and how you can manage and navigate your way around people's different sort of uh, ideas and you know all that kind of stuff. So it's a great way of articulating it there. And um, I say that because, uh, you know, starting your own business is, is never easy. And I just wanted to kind of move to the point where you decided to set up on your own in 2000, you said, was it? 2000, yeah. So we're about 20 years plus into, yeah, into your business. Nearly a quarter of a century, wow, yeah. which is terrifying <laughs> and great. Um, so I, I was working very happily in Hamilton Osborne King, which was a much smaller company then than it is now, HOK. Yeah. yeah. So at the time, I think when I joined, we had three offices, Belfast, Dublin and Cork. And in, in the Cork office, people still went home for lunch when right. I joined the company. But it was, you know, it was a fantastic introduction to the country. Great people, really good way to meet a wide variety of, of clients across the country. And um, in fact, one of my earliest jobs was for Bank of Ireland bank branches uh, across. I got a third of the branches to do across the country. So I was driving to places like Callan and um, Cashel and all sorts of places that I perhaps wouldn't have got to for a lot longer had I not been doing this work. So it, it was a different world in those days. Branch managers still lived above the branch in many cases, and it was a different island. But I really enjoyed my time at HOK. Would have probably stayed there for 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 a lot longer, but I felt that I wanted um, to have ownership of something, and that kind of wasn't on offer at that time for me in the company. So I took the decision to to move on and set up on my own with some some fear, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask. That's my next question: is like your mindset, because you've got a job, pays the yeah. bills, it does all of that, yeah. and suddenly you're talking about throwing all that aside and yeah. pressing ahead. I mean, what was it like starting? 
It was it was scary. I mean, I remember my very first day in business, 1st of October 2000, and uh, the first job I had was a residential survey in um, just just beside the Phoenix Park. And I remember driving there and, and carrying my ladders, which used to be much heavier in those days mm. than they are now, and thinking, oh, is this it now? Is this what I will be doing? And um, Have I bitten off more than I can chew? <laughs> yeah, and, and obviously there was also a status thing. You know, I was an associate director in the company and there was certain status with that and yeah. certain way that you were reflected in other people's eyes. And um, yeah, no, I, was, I was very, very fortunate because very early on I got some great instructions. I got the instruction to project manage the what was then the air cell fit out in Sandyford. And it then became Vodafone. So um, if you remember at the time, that was the biggest letting in Ireland. And it was a 38 and a half million fit out. So and it was it was amazing. It was an incredible instruction to get. And it sort of had a three year time frame. So um, I went in very cheap. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it gave me a real backbone to the business for three years mm -hmm. that I could build on and, and start recruiting people in and so on. And um, did, got a bit of work with the religious orders, and that was great as well, historic buildings and project management for historic buildings. And then slowly, slowly built up a client base and a reputation. It's interesting, you mentioned the historic buildings. I was just speaking to a, a coaching client of mine uh, on Friday, and his uh, it, it's a long story, but basically, him himself and his wife are they've inherited uh, an old building and I, and I mean old I was looking at the heritage report mm. and the, this building was built in 1664 so it's yeah. very old and we were talking about like what did you do with it and I was like wow you know when you get into heritage buildings and a monument it's like it's a national monument this mm. building and stuff and we were chatting about it and I just said the first thing is get a building surveyor on board because you yeah. need to know health and safety you need to all of this kind of stuff and that was the first port of call that we kind of yeah. came up with as the sensible yeah. move to make because they'd already looked at various things in the, you know several years ago but current status where are we today building surveyor and so you the business that you're in is pretty much the first port of call that a lot of people will go to in a situation yeah like uh, absolutely and sometimes they don't and that really surprises me because you know it, it's probably the biggest single investment people make is buying a property whether it's residential or commercial um, and to do that without really understanding what it is that you're buying or even let's move to something much simpler taking a lease a tenant taking a lease on an office building I was just talking about this with uh, somebody last week um, Almost never are we asked to do a building survey. We might be asked for a schedule of condition, but almost never are we asked to do a building survey or to assess what obligations the tenant's going to have under their lease and mm. what it might cost them on exit. And, um, you know, most tenants come out very, very surprised at the end of the process and say, well, why, why on earth should I have to pay that? That's not fair. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're acting for the tenant, it can be a hard job to take them through the documentation that they signed yeah, yeah. maybe 25 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, and show them why they're now responsible for perhaps um, a very significant bill. I, um, I know we, we, like, we, we would do a lease with somebody and then you had a great 
working relationship with them and everything's gone you know, fine. And they're leaving the building in ostensibly good condition. It looks nice, but they've been there, say, for 15 years. And so naturally there is wear and tear and there's various... And it almost, you, you're, you feel like you're going to end up coming to blows when you're mm. saying, like, it's, it's actually about 150 grand that you're going to have mm. to pay to kind of, like, you know, bring it up to standard. They're like, what? Like, <laughs> we're leaving, like, and you want us yeah. to pay 150 grand? Yeah. So it is, uh, yeah, it is painful. And that's yeah. why what you're saying is absolutely just know what you're getting involved in yeah. right from day one. And it might be, like, I've said actually to people that when you buy, you, you're the, you know, you're over 18. You're now, you know, responsible legally. If you're buying that building and it has some sort of a defect, health and safety puts you in, you know, completely at fault if anything should go wrong. Mm. And that is a criminal matter then when it, if, if something, you know, God forbid was to go wrong. But for example, not knowing that you had asbestos in a, in a place, mm -hmm. like, that's no defense when you're sort of in standing in front of a judge and somebody's like suing you. Yeah. Um, so this is the thing, or, or electrical fault or, you know, old plumbing that is you know the old lead pipes the the first house that i lived in with my parents was filled with these lead pipes mm. that were like 100 years old and of course we know now that that's not a good thing but <laughs> at the time yeah um actually i think the councils across the country i believe are doing a lead pipe replacement um scheme currently i saw i saw something about it in the press and you know about time you might say uh, but we do still have a lot of lead pipe work uh, victorian and early 20th century and um, because it was the way that we brought water into buildings until very late in the 20th century and um you know, I probably wouldn't, if I was personally looking at it, wouldn't worry too much at my age. But if I had young children, then certainly yeah. I would be concerned. Um, Sorry, so, watch our, that's our bell there ringing in the background, uh, <laughs> in case you're wondering. Something you mentioned there earlier about the property uh, that dates back to the 17th century. So I suppose something that's worth saying is that, you know, older properties are inherently sustainable because the embodied carbon was uh, embodied in them a long time ago yes. and therefore the more we can do to keep existing building stock in use and in active commercial use the better one of my big big concerns and i've been involved in a few working parties in society of chartered surveyors on this is the vacant properties that we have yeah. up and down the country in towns uh, large towns small towns and large villages that are vacant and you can go to you know let's say a another town in the midlands and you will see main street having the centra or spa the betting shops the hairdressers and barbers and the charity shops and often very little else um, there is an absolute fantastic potential there for residential mm -hmm. across the country in the places where people live and particularly for housing for elderly persons for whom you now you don't have to create a 10-minute town you already have a 10-minute yeah, town on your doorstep with the doctor and the church and the park and everything else in close proximity. But at the moment, our statutory approval system mitigates against those conversions. Mm. Now, we've got a fantastic Living in the City initiative in Dublin, and I've worked with that team, and it's been very successful, where they work as one 
united group to help you overcome the conflicts between, say, conservation and fire safety or fire safety and disability access yes. or whatever it might be. That's a, there's a lot of conflict there, though, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, there is, absolutely. And you're as a practitioner, you're dealing individually with the different departments, none of whom really care about the requirements of the other departments because their obligation is just to make sure that their requirements are met. But it makes it very, very expensive. Let's say you're the owner of uh, that property in the Midlands that might be worth at best 250000 you know, a, a mid-terrace town centre retail ground floor currently vacant and vacant upper floors. If you've got to spend 15000 before you start on statutory approvals, which might be negative, yeah. then you're on a hiding to nothing. The property will continue to be vacant. So we need to bang our heads together and find solutions for this. And um, It's all these vested interests and stuff like that. That's the biggest issue, isn't it? It's, it's like everyone's got their own fiefdom and they just, it's like as long as I'm protecting my area, um, yeah. that, that's all that matters. It's yeah. a big issue, all right, because I can remember I bought, I had a beautiful house uh, on per Herbert Place. Oh, yes. One of those ones overlooking the canal. And I think I did, we did a sort of a, a heritage report on I think the house was built in 1845 or something mm. like that. I can't remember exactly the date, but it was something in around that. And um, I remember saying, right, what I wanted to do was to completely restore the building. I wanted to you know, get all of the staircases all back to their original sort of carvings and everything like that. I really want to do a beautiful job on it. And, uh, but then came in the requirements for fire cert and all that kind of stuff. And it, they, they told me that in order to do what I wanted to do, I was gonna have to uh, put in fire lobbies and all of this kind of stuff. And I can remember being so frustrated saying like, what I'm trying to do here is like restore the building. Like, and I'm being told like all of this stuff has to has to be done so in the end i can't remember what exactly was the outcome but i sold the building decided like yeah. it's just too much hassle to kind yeah. of try to go down that road yeah and it's a tricky one because obviously nobody wants to be seen to be skimping on something that has a potential fatality risk yes. um having said that i don't know if you could tell me when the last time somebody died in a fire in an office building in ireland yeah, it's a good point yeah, actually. We, um, we do here, like we would have a um, like a fire drill once a month, I think it is, yeah. or something like that. And just everyone, you see them all sitting in the sand outside the building, five minutes later, they're all back at work yeah. and, and that's the end of yeah, it. You yeah, know? yeah, but, uh, yeah. And obviously regulations have developed over, you know, well, over the centuries, really, the Great Fire of London was the start of building regulations. Um, at least this part of the world. Um, you know, so there were very valid reasons to want to have regulations that made properties safe to live in and to be in and yeah. that's what we all want um, but sometimes the regulations are anomalous and make no sense but the people who um, look at the applications have no wiggle room to work with you which is different in other jurisdictions I think where perhaps um, Building Control, for instance, in Northern Ireland will work with you on a reciprocal basis to find a solution that satisfies them where it can't quite meet regulations. Uh, and it's it's more of a cooperative approach mm -hmm. than our approach, which is submit it, see if it, you know, see if you can satisfy the person looking at the application. If not, it's sent back and refused.
you know it's a it's a different system uh, a bit more flexible yeah, and you know, I, I was on the building regulations advisory body back in the 90s when I came to Ireland, actually largely because I was a woman and one of not very many women in the in the industry and they needed more women on government boards. But I had a, a you know, a, a significant number of years in that role and um, have seen have seen our system go from building regulations with a fire safety requirement to then the introduction of uh, the requirement for protected structures legislation, to then the requirement for disability access certs, to then the requirement for BCAR. And it's all bolt-on. Yeah. I think if somebody was to start the process today, day one, it would be different. And in our world where we're looking at what we have to do for sustainability, I think we need to be stepping back and looking at things de novo. And that's tough. That's a really tough mm. gig. But I think it would be warranted to do that in conjunction with what's coming in in terms of new directives from Europe in terms of needing to look at LCA and accounting for carbon in construction and everything else that's coming down the tracks it's gotten really complicated I was I was saying just the uh, on a recent podcast that you see that in the UK they have the EPC and we have our BEOR and if you're renting a property, the new rule uh, from April 25 is that it must be a C-rated building or, or above in order to be to qualify for rental. And, uh, and so that's going to mean that huge numbers of people in the UK are suddenly like not qualifying. And so that's hand in the pocket, invest in you know, adding in, you know, whatever it's insulation, solar panels, windows, whatever it might be. Do you think that there's a risk of that coming in here? Because I personally think that that is how the government will ultimately meet some of their objectives and promises that they've made for carbon you know, emission reduction and stuff like that. Yeah, so it definitely is coming here. Um, it's coming in via the um, EPBD, the European Performance of Buildings Directive, which is currently being, it's still being negotiated in Brussels. Um, it's been going on for quite a while, but it, they are progressing on it. The All the indications are we're not going to go to C. It's probably going to be an E or an F rating initially. How, like the UK, basically. Yeah. But what we do have to prepare ourselves for is that is also going to mean rationalisation of the way that the assessments are done across Europe. And the indications are that our BER ratings will go down. So, for example, you may have a property that is currently, let's say, C1, and uh, your BER cert will expire after a certain number of years. And when you go to have it done again, because the rules will have changed, it might be now a, a D. Yeah, might not be, it might only go down one or two points, but this is the strongly anticipated outcome, which... Um, which is what we've seen. If you look at, if you buy a refrigerator in, you know, DID Electrical or one of these places 10 years ago, it was an A-rated refrigerator. Today, that same refrigerator is like an F or something like that. Yes. And so I can see the way it's going. It's going to disappoint me because my new home that I just moved into is A1 and I don't want to lose that. So it'll be interesting to see how long I can keep my A1. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I get the point. The thing is, is what I've been saying all along is that you've got the stick and the carrot approach. And the, the carrot is the, is the grants that are on offer. Uh, there currently isn't a stick. 
but I think in order for the government to meet all of the promises, you know, they've, they've gone to the COP conferences and they've made promises around emissions and all this greenhouse gases. The only way is going to be by bringing in the stick and saying, right, no, any building that isn't below a certain level is below a certain level. That's it. You're off yeah. the rental market. Now, of course, yeah. that's going to have a negative impact on the rental market, which is the, the, probably the big difficult bit that they're trying to kind of come to, come to grips with mm. is that... We already have a major problem. You don't want to take, you know, kind of 10,000 houses off the market just because of some BEOR cert. But you can see the way it's... it's yeah, it is. And, you know, I think there's also a big question mark in my mind. So the current government policy, let's stick with residential, is to get to a B2, minimum B2 rating for 500,000 homes by 2030. And it, that's not an aim, it's... It's not a target, it's a commitment. Um, But that does mean that in many cases, people are aiming for B2 only and not higher. And the grant system will not give you more if you get it to an A rating than to a B2 rating. So particularly for those responsible for public monies or for, you know, charitable monies, it's very difficult to make the argument to actually do a bit more work at the property and get it to an A rating whilst you're there doing the work. Um, and, and that's a real, real problem. It is a real problem. I have seen that the banks at least are you know, showing up on this as well. I've, I've noticed that certainly the last time I looked at mortgage rates for AIB and stuff, I noticed that there was a half percent improvement if you were into the a rated yeah um which is a big you know half a point on a mortgage you know it's yeah it is definitely an incentive yeah. whether or not it's going to fund you know the works that you have to do to get there probably yeah. it doesn't but at least it's it's a you know it's dipping the hat i suppose too well certainly if we move um to commercial property the banks have uh i think well certainly bank of ireland has made a decision that the b2 is going to be their minimum for lending and most investors now want to see not just the path to B2, but the path to NZEB. Um, so NZEB, near zero energy buildings. And we have to get used to the term ZEB now because ZEB is coming down the tracks very, very quickly. So zero emissions, zero. Emissions, zero yeah, yeah. Uh, that's going to be, you know, a, a requirement very quickly. Yeah, and it's that, that's the biggest thing. I mean, some of the questions I wanted to cover with you today are really, you know, what should the commercial landlord be looking forward to? Uh, and I suppose looking forward is the wrong, is the wrong way because it's, it's, it, it's pain. You know, there's, there's some serious investment needed. We've been looking at our buildings and some of ours are, you know, of a certain age that they are, they're not easy to bring up to those levels commercially. I mean, you, you know, if you have a bottomless pit, you can pay for anything. But if you actually want the rent that you're collecting for the building to make sense based on the amount you paid for the building, the amount that it's sitting there, you know, with the new works done to it, the, the investments don't always stack up. And now, to make matters worse, the banks have become kind of a little bit more you know, reticent at releasing funds and stuff. And they have these, we've noticed that banks are saying, we want your portfolio to be much much greener but when it comes to a choice of paying down the existing debt or leaving some of it out there in order to make these improvements they tend to prefer the pay down of the debt they're not interested in 
you know, allowing you to make those investments that's supposed to come out of your own pocket rather than out of theirs. Yeah, yeah and I suppose there's, um, there's a dividing line between perhaps the larger funds and institutions which have very clear mandates and they've set their, you know, they've nailed their colours to the mast, they've said what they want to achieve, whether it be, you know, net zero by 2030, which seems to be a very common aim, or um, summer 2035. But, you know, they have the ability to put a plan in place generally because they're very high-yielding assets that warrant the work being carried out to them. Um, the big challenge is going to be a step down from that with the portfolios and the individual buildings, which, um, exactly as you say, finance is a big question mark. Um, having tenants in with leases where you can't disturb them during the term of the lease is a big question mark. So the starting point, I would say, is very often to carry out two things simultaneously, um, an energy audit and a sinking fund assessment, and to incorporate into the sinking fund assessment at appropriate timeframes for the building fabric, the upgrades that are highlighted in the energy audit as being the way to get to where you want to get to. Mm. So, for example, we did this recently for a building, a, a office building um, in the Munster region. And, um, you know, we looked ahead. In fact, it was a, an unusual one because the building only has uh, an anticipated 10-year remaining life because of where it is and what's happening in the area. And it's quite an old asset. Um, but we we basically have mapped out what it makes sense to do and what it makes no sense to do within a 10-year life. Um, for, for other buildings, for actually one here on East Point, I've looked at a 30-year time frame and, you know, looked at, say, the facades in the context of that longer time frame and at what point do these facades become economically end of life and therefore it makes sense to replace them. Before that, when does it make sense to perhaps do the roofs and the roof insulation and put solar PV on the roofs? Mm -hmm. And try to stage it so that you have a plan for the building. And obviously things change and technologies change and that can be updated. But I would certainly be saying to anybody who's buying an asset to make sure that as well as your technical due diligence, you have a sustainability due diligence mm -hmm. that maps out how you're going to be able to get the building to a level that will mean that it's not left as a stranded asset well that's the word that i was just on the tip of my tongue was stranded yeah. asset is that uh, the unfortunate reality for a lot of people is that those plans that you're talking about whilst they make total sense the economics just don't currently stack mm. and so it is quickly becoming a stranded asset and for anyone who's not familiar with, with the term stranded asset that is effectively where the, the work that you need to do to get the building rented again is greater than the value of the building um, in its current situation. And so nobody's going to fund that. You don't have the funds in your own pocket to do that. And therefore, you're stuck. And, uh, and nobody wants to buy it because of the cost of this, except maybe if it's in a particular location, somebody with you know lots of cash can go ahead and buy it. But from an economic standpoint, most landlords, they, they use borrowed funds in order to do this and so it has to stack 
um, and a lot of the time it doesn't. Yeah, and again, just if we move to government um, obligations, so, you know, the Climate Act has said that we will have 30,000 commercial buildings retrofitted to a minimum B2 by 2030, that any state body cannot rent a building below uh, B2 rating, I think, currently, and I think by 26 or 27, it's uh, net zero. I've actually, I think it may be even different. I think that certainly government entities that we're working with cannot rent a building below A3. Okay. But they can um, renew a lease as long as it's okay. B2. Okay. But yeah. Yeah, so that's even even more stringent. And that, given the amount of state leases that we have, I think... People have not really started to even get their heads around what this is going to mean. But it's going to mean that when your lease is coming to an end with that state entity, you have to either be two years ahead of time offering them the path to you upgrade in the building or jointly upgrade in the building. If they really want to stay there, there may be some, you know, some incentive for them to contribute. Or you need to think about what you're going to do with your building. Mm. Yeah, and that's it where, it where it comes into change of use, potentially, or whatever. You did mention earlier, and I think that's where a lot of this makes sense, is you know, taking one of our buildings in, out the window here. Uh, you're looking at a building that's three floors, two floors high, and uh, if you have to do a huge amount of work to get it up to, say, an A1 standard or an A3 standard or whatever, it probably makes more sense, given the increasing densities, to actually knock the building down and or 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 try to extend it i know knocking a building down is also yeah. problematic now because of the embodied carbon and stuff like that yeah i mean it can make sense in some circumstances to strip a building back to shell and core so you keep the structural frame but you remove everything else and you know you've still got your concrete floors and your concrete roof and your structure but in terms of adding investment value you, you're you, stuck with the same but you may be able to add depending on the structure of the building and how it was designed you may be able to add extra floors particularly in lightweight construction and that's we're looking currently at um, an apartment development built in the 70s and a floor can be added to that in lightweight construction that will solve some of their problems in conjunction with with energy upgrades um, for the for the development, yeah. so that's something that we should we should certainly be looking at densification of use as part of part of what we do in terms of sustainability. Mm. And um, for me, I think you know demolition is an absolute last resort. Uh, sometimes there's going to be no other option, but in many cases there are other options. And um, we certainly using this as an example, like we've looked at this and the problem is it, a lot of the time it's, it's the decisions that were made way back, you know, when the building mm. was built 20 years ago. So we have got piled foundations in the cases of some of these buildings and they were designed to take two additional floors um, yeah. at a later date. And so we've at least done that. But a lot of people, when they're at that point, it's like, well, how much extra is it going to cost to put in that, you know, thickened, you know, it's going to cost an extra 100 grand or whatever. Oh, well, no chance. Like, let's just keep it. Because you're not thinking ahead 20 years. Yeah. You're thinking, I need the money now. Yeah. And so in our case, we, we were able to do that. But there's all these complications that people don't realize because I've added floors to buildings. And when, yeah. you, when you, first of all, you have to extend your, your lift shaft, which usually isn't too difficult. You can do that with steel. 
but the width of the staircase is the problem because as you add extra floors, the capacity of the building, the number of people goes up and then suddenly the width of the stairs for a fire escape actually becomes a problem. Yeah. And I can remember not being allowed to add two floors, being restricted to one because of the width of the staircase in the fire stairs. And that yeah. was... Really, and yeah. I, I've been in a project where we had exactly the same thing happening. We weren't actually adding any extra floors. We were um, extending the building horizontally and there were new staircases going in serving the horizontal extensions that fully met all building regulations. And exactly as you say, the fire cert was conditioned with a requirement for a 100 mil increase in the width of the stairs. And it simply couldn't be done because it was a concrete core, two concrete cores, and yeah. um, you'd have had so to demolish the building to, yeah. to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that building is still standing there empty five years after we went through this process. Five years. Or five half. years, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, this is the thing that people don't realize that you, you have to be so careful as an investor because, uh, and I've made mistakes over the years as well, where you buy something and I won't say you buy it on a whim, but you buy it making certain assumptions. Yeah. And those assumptions, if you don't test them very carefully before you're committed, you can find that later that they don't hold water and suddenly you're stuck. I bought a building with a partner um, in 2005 I think it was and we had to hold on to that building for about 10 or 11 years empty before we were able to sell it mm. and because our assumptions were wrong at the outset and then we were on the back foot when we realized we made a mistake and we were tried everything to find a tenant to go in nobody wanted to touch the building yeah and so we had interest carry costs all this kind of stuff and in the end we sold the building Twenty percent of what we paid for it, and yeah. it was it was absolutely <laughs> awful. Uh, um, but that's you know what, what got me all the grey hair and things like that. Um, but actually, that's interesting. I mentioned earlier, you know, around the same time that you bought uh, your building, perhaps two thousand and seven, I bought a retail unit off plan in one of these tax um, incentive areas, and and actually it would have. Had the crash not happened, there was to be 400 homes built on that side of mm. the town and, and it would have been, you know, there'd have been a market for those retail units. So, the yeah, there's the assumption. Uh, however, in this case, the building had been empty and I thought, OK, there's apartments overhead. I'll do the conversion to residential, which you could do if you remember the planning exemption yes. for vacant commercial buildings. I did the liaison with the local authority. It was a large unit. And I was going to convert it into a very large one bed because I thought, let's not skimp and make it two tiny units. Let's make a nice big one yes, bed yeah. and uh, overlooking a river, you know, really nice property. I then went and got costs for it and the costs for doing the conversion using a builder who was very familiar with us and had priced it pretty well at cost. You know, they hadn't built in yeah. the normal profit margins. It was going to cost 128000 now, apartments in this development at the time were selling for 160000 So, obviously, there was absolutely zero sense in sinking yeah. that money into... It was just, yeah, bad know. money after bad, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and this is the problem, I think, that we're going to come to with retrofit. Because, okay, in Dublin, very often the retrofit makes sense. And, you know, you've upped your BER rating to either a B2 or, an, you know, something higher... 
and you've increased the value of the property. But if you're in the West or in the Midlands and you have a home that's not going to ever be worth more than 250000 and it's worth 250000 now, it's very difficult to find the argument in the absence of grants that will cover a very significant amount of the cost to do the works. Mm. Now, our system currently does offer 80% grants for um, people who are in fuel poverty. And that's great. But I think that needs to be that higher funding level needs to be broadened to take into account the realities yeah. of economics around the country. I think what happens is like all of these commitments that are made, they're made in the cold, you know, light of day and they're not really thought through. And then like here we are now, 500,000 homes by 2030. There's not a chance that we're going to make that. And it's nobody is kind of like frantically kind of out there kind of panicking about this. They're like kicking the can down the road, it seems to me. It's like, well, I'm, I'm not sure that's quite true. I think there are people in SEAI, Sustainable Energy Authority Ireland, yeah. who, are, who are spending a lot of time, energy, legwork trying to find solutions. I had a great conversation actually at the Irish Green Building Council event last week with somebody from SEAI who's, who's this is their area of operation and, and I raised all my arguments as to why our current system isn't working and raising the models that I thought have worked elsewhere and she was very aware of all of them had looked at all of them and was able to tell me why they hadn't worked for those governments so you know I personally I think that there's um potential for something called the energy sprung model which has been used in it originated in the Netherlands it's been used in various European countries and in the UK whereby your retrofit is done in a factory off-site and the on-site period is perhaps five days to two weeks at the end of the project and the contractor comes to site with insulation panels for your wall and roof already made Um, they put them on the outside of your building the on-site operation involves taking out windows and replacing them and doing the air tightness and there's a pre-packaged energy plant room which has your solar, you know, the the work, the battery storage and um, other equipment for your solar. It has your heat pump in it, and that comes to site and is just bolted on the side of your home and connected to the services within your home. But I'm told that we don't have the economies of scale to make. The, the even more interesting thing with that model is it's based on a long funding plan where the energy savings pay for the cost of the works over perhaps a 30-year period. So your energy bills stay the same as the occupier, but each month as you pay your energy bills, you're chipping away. That's the way it should be done, but I think the biggest problem, a lot of the time the problem is, is that government parties are only in power for four or five years and then, so it's, it's the next election cycle is the only thing that these people are kind of concerned about. Whereas 30 years is the way that this would work. There's a few things that I'd like to ask Christina before people leave. First of all, and this might put you on the spot a little bit, but best advice that you've received in your career to date? Oh, yeah. Best advice I've received in my career to date I didn't take, which was a client of mine, uh, a real character, who told me, never borrow 
any money from the banks. Fund anything you do in your business yourself, which is what he did over a very successful career um, over many decades. And uh, I didn't follow his advice. But that is a great piece of advice if you can do it. Retrospectively, yeah. I mean, I wish I had done the same as well. (laughs) (laughs) And tell me this. Um... In terms of, you know, resources that you, you know, you're very learned about all this kind of stuff. I mean, what are some podcasts, resources, you know, whether it's books or anything, is there anything out there that you would recommend that people pick up and read? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd recommend anybody who's got even a passing interest to join Irish Green Building Council. It's um, very cheap for individuals to join. It's not expensive for companies to join. And you then get access to all of their training resources, uh, which are relatively low cost for members or free, entirely free for members. And they offer the opportunity to do various trainings, such as in um, LCAs or, Mm. um, you know, all the different things that are out there that we need to know about. They have training schemes for embodied carbon, um, residential, you know, the, the home performance index, etc., etc. So, And this is this is coming down the tracks, so whether or not you're interested. It is. It's just, it is, it, is. it is guaranteed to knock you off your, your well, chair at some point. What I say to the younger people in the companies that we have is, this is your entire future. This, you as a professional in the built environment, whether you're in property, whether you're in renewables whether you're in building surveying project management you need to know this stuff and the people who are coming out of college now already know it as they're coming out of college so if you want to keep any sort of competitive advantage with them in your career you've got to upskill yourself and you it's behoven to yourself to do that for yourself in your career there's loads of resources out there there's loads i think There's more events we could go to than we have time to go to. There's more books out there than we could ever read. But just start somewhere and start asking the questions. Good advice, guys. You've been warned. Um, Christina, final question. Um, And you mentioned college students coming out and stuff like that. So let's turn back the clock to young Christina at 20, leaving college. What advice, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? Hmm, that's an interesting one. I think the advice I would give myself is to follow my gut instinct more often than I did during my career and to find an environment which fit for me, which is what I've now done and created for myself. Okay. So earlier, finding yes. that environment. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Good advice. Christina, if anyone wants to reach out, connect, uh, hire you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, you can uh, phone me 087-968-0106. Always happy to take a call. And um, also email Christina, K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N-A at K-R-A.ie. And we have a team of people that if I can't help you myself, somebody in the team will be able to assist. Well, I will put those links and that phone number, if you want, uh, into the show notes. Yes, please. Great. Yeah, and always happy, even if somebody just has a question and they want, they don't know which way to go with something, happy to, to have that conversation and help you find a direction. Brilliant. All right, Christina, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.
All right, guys, I hope you found that episode useful. Um, Christina, I'm going to put her details down in the show notes or the video description below. Please go and check it out. Also, do check out the links to my new mastermind. It's kicked off and it's had a really good start. We had a great number of uh, guys on the call last day and we have some new members from the UK joining in and stuff like that. So it is uh, a really interesting little community building up there. So please check it out. Uh, we have a discount for the month of September. And so I hope you will join. And so I will speak to you next week. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the Join My Tribe thing over on the right-hand side. This will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter. All of these links are in the show notes below. That's all for now. I will see you guys in the next episode.